Before we start this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we're recording this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, both past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to Want Her Game. When you think of the big female athletes of the late 90s and early 2000s, Kathy Watt is one of them. That peroxide blonde hair, those big Oakley sunglasses, those records and barriers that she broke. A pioneer and a powerhouse, she was making cycling cool long before the Sunday morning lycra-clad scene was a thing. Kathy made history at the Barcelona Olympic Games when she became the first Australian male or female to win an Olympic cycling road race gold medal, before she then added silver in the pursuit. She competed in two Olympics, three Commonwealth Games and six World Championships. But what her long list of achievements doesn't show was what she had to put up with to get there. A draconian and frankly cruel form of cycling system And the person in charge of that Australian program made Cathy's life as difficult as possible. It's both sad and frustrating hearing what Cathy had to go through back then. That behaviour, it would have caused many to quit, but not Cathy. She fought and fought like hell. When that same national cycling coach tried to replace her from the team days before the 96 Olympics, even though she was the best rider with the fastest time and best results, she took it to court and won. She had to do the same thing ahead of the Sydney Games. Stories like Cathy's are important to remember what it was like for athletes who have come before us and to appreciate their fight and frustrations are not in vain. They've made the sporting world better and safer for female athletes today. Cathy may have had to fight for everything, but she did get a little help in the genetic department. And I started by asking her about her father, Jeff Watt, made a name for himself running across the planet in the most unconventional ways. Your dad was a really talented runner. Can you tell me a little bit more about your dad? Yeah, my dad um, was an adventurer and marathon runner and he ran Hmm. marathons all around the world. He got um, 10th in the Boston Marathon, 10th in the Comrades Marathon, which is like 64 kilometres uphill in South Africa. Um, yeah, he travelled and hitchhiked to marathons around the world, got fourth in the US National and London to Brighton. So he did pretty well for someone who was hitchhiking and Herb Elliott said that he would have loved to have had the adventures my dad had, but obviously when you're truly elite, you can't do that. And imagine back then, I mean, adventure running and even marathon running isn't what it is today, really. No, my dad, um, there's a map of where he travelled and he went to Iran and Iraq and escaped in the back, he got locked up and escaped in the back of a garbage truck and um, was a beach photographer. He worked his way around, so he was the beach photographer in certain, in London and um, then he got... And he got uh, given tickets to go to the um, race in Japan and Korea because he had a big hat with the the fly things on it, and he was a bit like of, the corks, yeah, corks, and yeah, he had a big beard, and he was really a bit of a character. So 
the <laughs> event organizers loved having him at the event and he was friends with all the marathoners. So I think he, they, he traveled and stayed with them and even trained with the BB Bikila and some of the guys at high altitude and yeah, he walked through the jungles and did all sorts of, and he climbed Kilimanjaro is the first person to do it alone and with no oxygen. What? And he came down and he got snow blindness because he didn't have much with him and um, they just left him to die. But he, he crawled down and he made it. And when he he made it um, and he, yeah, he went to hospital, but then when he survived that, he said, I'm not afraid of man nor beast. I'll walk through the jungle alone. Luckily he was only there for two weeks because mm. <laughs> he would have got eaten. <laughs> Wow. Did he, was that before you were born? Yeah, or that, that was Did he still continue to do it? And then he came back and he met my mum and they, he decided to settle down in Warrigal and he went into the real estate agents and he said, I'll be running past, but he meant running past. He ran down from Brighton <laughs> to where he was living to, 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 the, to call into the real estate to pay the deposit. <laughs> Wow, how far is that? Oh, for those who aren't familiar, he's like wow, far he's out. Ultra marathoner. So Percy Sarity, mm. my dad, and another guy called Stace, who was some of the original training group at Percy Sarity's training camps. That's when you know you had Herb Elliott and John Landy and well, Derek mm. Clayton and other people training there. Um, yeah, yeah, they did like. They had races like 100 miles, 60 mile, and I think it was wow. 50 mile or something, yeah, and they won wow. one some each. Famous one names of, <laughs> some famous names of Australian athletics there. That's incredible. It sounds like the original Forrest Gump before Forrest Gump was even an idea um, for a movie. Um, he did pass away when you were quite young, didn't he? What can you remember of that time? Yeah, I mean, when we were young we used to go with my mum to all his marathons and that and I remember that and I remember, um, yeah, he was pretty active so he liked climbing mountains or, you know, going to like the <laughs> nature parks and things like that or state mm. forests so I remember doing that. And then when he died, um, yeah, I guess we used to still go down to see Percy Serity and, you know, I guess as a young girl, you absorb a lot of that. You see like the Spartan looking beds with John Landy written on there and you see the basic weights like barbells and you try and lift them as a young kid, but, you know, you can't really. And then there was mm. a trampoline and a big running track and, yeah, you learn the philosophy of um, Percy Serity. So they'd, they'd have like raw oats with just um, banana on them and no milk and um, they're supposed to have no salt but Nancy told me her little secret she used to have a little cupboard under the sink and she said we'd put some in when Percy wasn't looking and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so we used to go down there as kids and yeah it was great mm. and yeah run up some try and run up some of the sand hills like especially when mm. I became older um, one of my dad's best mates Stace lived down at um Sorrento so uh, we'd go down there and um, run up the hills and he'd tell me all the stories of um, when my dad and him were training and you know one of the original disciples of uh, Percy Serity. Mm. Um, can I ask how, how did he die? Um, he died uh, he was on 
a training run at um, up Mount Erica, which is he had an optometry practice at Maui and Warrigal. And mm-hmm. after work, he left Maui and went up to Mount Erica. To, it was just a, a basic run for him. He just run up the mountain and back. But mm-hmm. my friends that are Australia's top orienteers and rogainers said, when it's white out there, you just can't see anything. And if you're not prepared, mm-hmm. and he ended up, they found him 15 metres. He got a bit lost and he'd he was found 15 metres from the track down, so oh. which was pretty tragic. Um, and he looked like he'd stopped to take some a stone or something out of his shoe and that caused hypothermia. Oh, wow. Yeah, and his so best could... running mates knew where he would be and they went up the next day, but, yeah, he died unfortunately. Oh, wow. Did your dad's passing influence or affect your career and in particular your determination and drive? Um, Yeah, well, my dad wanted to be an Olympian and he'd tried for Olympics and Com Games, but I think there were a lot of good distance runners and I think he was always one place that he'd miss out by. Um, So, yeah, that was my big ambition to make Mm. it um, to the Olympics and um, to win medals. but I, w- I thought I'd do it as a runner. But, <laughs> mm. but that didn't, what, you got injured and is that how you started riding? Yeah, I got um, Achilles tendon injuries and I started, mm. um, yeah, then the doctors and physios said, why don't you get on a bike for rehab? So I started doing that and then I started doing some duathlons and I call on my way to physio study, I, I which was at RMIT, I I called into the local bike shop and a guy there called Damien Grundy, who became four times um, mountain bike coach for Australia, he said, why don't you come out and start training? And then he said, oh, gosh, you're all right. (laughs) I was very fit from running and he helped me on the bike and then I won lots of duathlons and he said, I'm coaching this young kid called Cadell and I've been teaching him to clip in and out because in those days you had the old toe straps. So sure, had to learn how to clip in and out with the cleats and stuff. Yeah. And so he started teaching me that about the same time as Cadell started and then, um, yeah, I went to my first race and I said, what do I wear? This is about three weeks after I started. He said, I'll just wear something aerodynamic. So I rock up in Warrnambool with this one-piece Hot, hot pink ski suit with a zip up the middle. I can't believe it. Luckily it was winter and I got this long arm and I had blood drops and runners. I can't believe my coach didn't tell me to go and get some shoes. Anyway, and then I, I finished third and one of the girls ran me all the way across the road and I just got her for the bronze medal. And then I jumped off. It was only 15K, so I jumped off the bike and ran two laps of the course. And all these guys forever in cycling, because nobody runs, reminded me that they can couldn't get that out of their heads. And, uh, and the night before I had no idea what to eat for cycling races. So I had this big Chinese dinner and then I oh. ate all these bananas. It was just crazy. <laughs> so you, you, 
your first race, you were in a ski suit, a bright, a hot, hot pink, pink ski and then suit. The official came <laughs> yes. up and said, "Do you realise you've got to wear regulation black necks?" Because there were no sponsorship in that day, those days. No. Regulation black necks and white socks. And yeah, I said, "Well, I'm just new to this. I only started three weeks ago, so yeah." <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. What about Cadell? Did you continue to, you know, have? Um, a friendship with Cadell during those early days and what was he like in those early days? Um, I guess he was a little bit different and, uh, yeah, he was mm. doing a lot of mountain biking so we were a bit um, different areas. But, yeah, through Damien, yeah, he'd tell me how he was going and things like that, yeah. Yeah. Do you stay in touch Yeah, well, considering when, those early days? When, um, I retired in 2000, um, there was an assignment for Inside Sport and I went out and photographed Cadell in his Cadillac and ah. driving along and with the horses on his mother's farm and stuff like that. So, yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. And you remember, remembered each other from back in the day? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, He wouldn't have forgotten the hot pink ski suit. Oh, no, he wouldn't have seen that, that he was doing mountain biking. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, you competed then in those early days of the Tour de France feminine, mm-hmm. feminine in 80, 1988. Yeah, yeah. What was that event like in the early days? Because that was like the female equivalent of the Tour yeah, de France. Female and we've had so many. It was absolutely fantastic. It was my first race I'd ever done in Europe. And mm-hmm. um, I arrived in London and um, they said to go out. I was training around Centennial Park and they said to go out to the country and then I rode back down the M1 because I could see this big lane. I'm sure these days you could, wouldn't be able to do that. No. I rode all the way back to London and then I went to the Tour de France. And in those days the biggest race in Australia was the three-day Canberra Tour for women, which was put on by mm-hmm. a really great guy, Merv Britton, and I won that. And then next minute I got selected to go to the women's Tour de France, and in those days it was in conjunction with the men, so it was ah, okay. super exciting. Um, mm. Because what do you mean in conjunction with the men? Did you go earlier or off at the same time, um, or how did they we do it back then? Five minutes earlier, and then right. the other days we started. I think was five minutes behind, but we had all the same crowds. Like you can imagine mm-hmm. coming from a field of from the Canberra Tour where you've got 25 riders and then yeah, yeah. going there there's like over maybe 110 riders. Um, yeah. You've got to cope with all the bunches and there's so much to learn. But, like, I just loved it <laughs> and I thought, gosh, if this yeah. is women's cycling, I'm signing up for this because at that yeah. stage I was trying to work out whether I did running or cross-country skiing and biathlon. So... Um, And, yeah, that really got me hooked and um, I lost a bit of time in the first few days because I was a bit lost in the bunch and how to manoeuvre in because a lot of crashes and different things and there was a really strong Chinese team which were causing lots of crashes. But, but, yeah, and then I got better and better and the guys at the club, Blackburn Club, had taught me how to descend. So... I might be like 11th over the top of the hill and then I'd go past him on the descent because I'd never crashed and I didn't have any Yeah. Yeah. No. One thing you have never had is fear. You got seventh 
overall. How big a result was that for you back then? Um, that was pretty huge because um, we had Liz Heppel in the team. She got third and Donna Gould ended up coming 11th. And on that mm. last one of the stages that was up, I think it was Le Puy de Dome, was really steep hill and I climbed past Liz Heppel and then I thought, yeah, I can be really good at this sport, you know. Awesome. There have been so many incarnations of the women's Tour de France over the years, so many. Uh Why do you think that it hasn't worked out each time? It was working when in 1988 or started in 84 and the last edition I think was in 1989 and then Ginny Longo retired. So some of the organisers at the Tour de France in the men's one thought for ASO thought that it couldn't work without her being there or for the publicity. Mm. She was a big name back yeah, then. Yeah, but I mean that what they should have done really is you know, put other people's yes. names up as well because we had the great yeah. Maria Canines and a lot of you know, really great champions of our era. Um, Kathy Watt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, then... What happened is then it went to a guy called Pierre Bouy and um, it went through various editions. It became Tour of European Community because it could get more sponsorship through different countries and things like that. Mm. And then one of the latest editions was in, I did, was in, I think it was 19, was it 1998 when I was racing on a French team, mm. um, Lotte Garon, and um, we had lots of double stages it was just brutal and I was living Mm. in a share house with a girl from Burkina Faso who'd come from the villages and she was carting water but she ended up being the second strongest girl on our team and I think she would Mm. have lasted to the end of the Tour de France but we were doing all these cat ones and a butt horse category which is like above category one which means they're really steep and they're really long Mm. and Day after day we had three double stages and it just got too much. So she pulled out on day eight. But Longo, Ginny Longo didn't finish either. I think she pulled out the girl from Burkina Faso. And on one of the stages we finished on the top of this big hill and our manager decided we would um, have our sandwiches there and massage. And so we had girls on wind trainers. We had um massage happening people eating and the girl from Burkina and then we had this big crowd starting to gather around us and there was a big cheese shop at the top of the hill which was a specialty so everybody was (laughs) gathering around with their cheese and watching us and um the girl from Burkina Faso pulls out this prayer mat because she's Muslim and she put wraps this skirt around her and whips down her nicks and everyone's looking in horror and then she's just praying to Allah at the top of this mountain. It was just, wow. I wish I had my camera actually. <laughs> yeah. Wow, how special. Yeah. So why do you think this current, none of them have really been able to to catch on and last. They've always like stopped and then restarted. What about this current version that started last year? Do you yeah, think, I think now it's is got the right time? A lot more funding behind it. Um, it's starting pretty small. Um, people are saying, "Oh, it's the first, but it's not really because no. <laughs> there's been a very long history and um, it's produced a lot of female champions in the sport. Mm. Um, but I think the new one, because it's got the backing of ASO and that it. Um, yeah, it's got the funding there and also the structure of women's 
the team I joined in, I think, 1998 was one of the first pro um, tour women's teams. Mm. So I raced also with Lotto and another French team, but um, they were the very early days. Now mm. the women's teams have integrated um, with the men's teams and all the major men's teams have a women's Definitely division, interest. which is great because yeah. you've got all the infrastructure there of mm. masseurs, mm. mechanics, etc. You're not trying to reinvent everything, and women mm. get uh, proper wages and things like that. So yeah, conditions yeah. are a lot better, and yeah, I think yeah. it will succeed because of that. Back home, um, I want to talk about the cycling system in Australia in those early days because there's a lot that has been said about this really like the draconian and really cruel practices of the national cycling team and that system during those early days in that time and in your time how did you find it um yeah we had to fund everything that like all our bikes everything so a lot of the pioneers and the women became that came before me um yeah we had to work part-time jobs or full-time jobs and then um yeah, we were expected to go away with national team for four to six months of, mm. you know, or big long periods. Um, and, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess there wasn't much for women in those days. I remember when I started my coach said don't ask for any sponsorship till you win national championships or better than that. So I got second at the national road championships because I messed up mm. the sprint, went to the Oceanas. And while everybody was at Club Med enjoying the beach, I was there studying the course and the sprint. And when I <laughs> when I came to the sprint, I blew them away and won by about eight lengths. Um, yeah. Which and then I went and rang up Frank Nactical, who was with Repco Bicycles, which sponsored a big mm-hmm. squad of males and some Olympians, in, including Steve Stewart and Steve Fairless and a lot of the top guys at the time I said will you sponsor me mm. he says no we don't sponsor Sheila's I said what because mm. <laughs> I was at uni and I just so I just said to him listen most a lot of your bikes aren't all racing bikes they're for families and a lot of women mm-hmm. would be purchasing them for the kids and you should revisit it and he says oh well let me think about it I'll call you back so in 20 minutes, he called me back and says, okay, you're our first female. And he said, he invited me into the office. Wow. And when I went, when I went into his office, he's looking around, is it you? He thought I was going to be <laughs> six foot four and slam him up against the wall and I don't know what, but um, yeah, we right. laugh about it today because, yeah, yeah, it's like knowing your market and, yeah, but he mm. was great and he's been a supporter ever since and, yeah, he's supported women and, like, also um, had ended up getting a Toyota and uh, Jerry Ryan. He supported mm-hmm. me before I won the Olympics. So, you know, there were some really From Jayco. And Citibank. Yeah. There were some really great people out there that I met who were prepared to support women and, you know, I was professional and trying to uh, – got third in the Giro d'Italia and won the points jersey and um, yeah. won the Commonwealth Games, silver on the track. So, yeah. Mm. I want to get to that um, in a moment. But was it always a fight to get these people on board? Was it always like the first response, we don't sponsor Sheila's? <laughs> when obviously that's 
not Sheila is, but, you know, was it? did you have to push and did you have to fight for that? Um, I just tried to get results and um, do the best I could and then, um, mm. tr- yeah, try and look after my sponsors. Um, but, yeah, it was a lot easier if you're male because you got a lot more support. Mm. Charlie Walsh was the national coach um, for 20 years. You and him had a very well-documented Difficult relationship. What was it like he to train under him? He wasn't actually the women's coach and he never coached me. Um, he mm. claimed my medals when I won but he had actually done everything he could to stop me. Stop you. Um, yeah. Even going to the Olympics or um, trying to succeed. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's just a bit outrageous actually and I don't think those yeah. practices would be allowed today like that. Um, what practices were they? Um, there was no place for women in his squad. It was mm. only for men. So, yeah. Mm. What was that like then? How did you fight that system if he's I went, meant to be the national I coach? My, and... I, developed, I got my own coach. I Like I've got a university degree in physiology so mm. and uh, nutrition and that. So, yeah, the, I used all that knowledge to help me become a better athlete and um, we went to the women before the 92 Olympics. There was no um, AIS or anything. We went to Adelaide for three by three week training camps and it it's got cut at each camp. So it was ruthless. Mm. There was no uh, clear criteria of how you make the team. They just yeah. said you had to be uh, good in training, good in racing and have good VO2 max tests. So I was the best, um, Neil Craig said, I, the physiologist said I was the best with physiology that he'd ever tested at um, the AIS. So mm. I was good in that area. And every day we went out and we raced each other up the hills. Like mm. um, <laughs> you always tried to be the best up every hill or in every activity and Charlie Walsh actually stopped me training for the pursuit before the Olympics. Um, he said, "If you get, if you train for the pursuit, I'll send you home." So, Why? What, what I would do is I'd do mental rehearsal in my room when others went to the shopping mall. I'd mentally rehearse that I'm on a track and what I'm doing. And yeah. sometimes when we were coming back after training we'd be riding down the highway and my friend said what are you doing I was just pedaling a million miles an hour because that's what you have yeah. to do as a pursuiter but um yeah in when the Olympics came I came I was super fit but I came just a little bit short um yeah because yeah we hadn't done that really high why did he stop you? Because I'll get to that. But why would he wouldn't let you train on the track? He didn't want you doing the pursuit. Like you were obviously skilled and and wanted to do both. And why, if he's not the coach of the women's team and didn't have any interest, did he still have all that sway to be able to do that? I don't know. That's cycling. <laughs> Back there, that was just roadblocks constantly yeah, that yeah, you came yeah, up against. Yeah, yeah, and our coach resigned before the Olympics, and they put an apprenticeship coach who who'd we'd been racing and beating <laughs> and she became our coach mm. but she was like having she was pretty good friends with the German rider I was racing in the pursuit and had a good luck doll in her pocket and I didn't hear a single time but I was lucky that Heiko Salzwedel who was the road coach 
He came on the infield with me, although they tried to stop that as well, unfortunately. Mm. And Is this for the road race? No, for the um, pursuit. For the pursuit. He came on yeah. the infield and guided me. Like he's a genius. He worked with Great Britain to medals, Denmark, yeah. all different countries, Germany. But he was with yeah. Australia and he was like an absolute asset and they were trying to stop. Yeah, I was in tears the days before the Olympic mm. pursuit because they were trying to ban him from helping me. Mm. Even before that, you guys didn't even have a mechanic, did no, you, to help no for the road race? I was at, I was at, when I was at the um, Olympics, and my bike wasn't working, and the apprenticeship coach said, before the road race, yeah, before the road race, yeah. we were going around, and the gears were jumping, and she said, mm. either you keep riding or you get in the car, and that's it. And we had we had no mechanic. And I went and asked some mechanics from the other teams, but because at the All Rider Tour I'd gone so well, they said, no. No, I want to help we're you. Not, we're <laughs> not going to help you. We're, we're bad. <laughs> we're not allowed to help you. You're going too good because I'd had the leader's jersey. I'd smashed course mm. records. They couldn't catch me and won um, time trials and, yeah, won the most mm. aggressive rider in the lead-up to the Olympics they said we're not allowed to help you so I rang back home to my coach and I said what am I going to do and he says I'll tell you what ring get the interpreter um mm-hmm. to ring the local bike shop or you ring up and get him to talk and then I rode my bike down to the local bike shop did some in Spain in Spain yep in Barcelona I rode from the village down to the local bike shop Left my bike with them. The interpreter had told them what I needed on there because we had the wrong cluster. I needed a straight block cluster because it wasn't like hilly like Tour de France, but it was all up and down. And I got the right equipment on my bike. I got it. Then I called taxi back down there, got the bike, and it was the best $127 I ever spent. (laughs) In Barcelona. But that was mad because the men's had a mechanic in the Australian team, right? Yeah. He could have done it. No, no, that's right. I that's... asked Charlie Walsh, the roads mechanic was away for the men, the men's one, the men had mm. one. And then I asked Charlie Walsh, I begged him, could I please um, speak to the track mechanic and get him to fix my the, my bike? And Charlie said no. And then I said, oh, please. And then he said, oh, well, you have five minutes with him to try and fix like it was no he, he can wow. give you some advice like that's so uh, yeah I went down to the local shop and when I won the the guy who was the interpreter he was also a historian in Spanish history and he took me around Barcelona and we saw, oh, we saw that albino <laughs> gorilla and I learned a lot about the history uh, of Barcelona where it was amazing uh, always a silver lining with you Kathy yeah did that put some, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Because that's the national coach. You're in Australia representing the green and gold in the Olympics the day before the road race. Simple question, can I get someone to look at my bike? Answer, no. Like, it's just crazy that that's what went on. Did that put more fire in your belly for that race? Oh, no, it was just like all these obstacles. And then I remember ringing back to my coach and I said, I'm feeling really good. I'm going to chase everybody down and my coach in Australia said, what do you mean you're going to chase everybody down? Why don't you attack them? So it was all about having positive mindset. Mm. And um, Mm. I did some work with a sports psychologist, Graham Winter, and Mm -hmm. 
um, I've got a series of five scenarios. One might be like um, I'm away in a small break, like a group. Um, mm. One of them might be it comes to a sprint finish because that's what's happened in the pre-Olympics the year before. Another one mm. might be there might be people are out front and I sprint up the side of the road and go past them so they can't see me. And by the time they see me, it's too late, I'm gone. Um, mm. And so when that actually happened in the road race, that, yeah, I didn't hesitate. It was like deja vu. But before I attacked, coming into the last lap, um, the, the French, the Americans, um, Oh, like the Dutch, all the main teams had attacked and we were going up this hill with 10K to go and everyone was breathing really heavily. And I thought, you know what, um, I'm feeling good. So because we didn't have all the guys, <laughs> the track guys, Charlie's guys, had the bikes with the new equipment where the, you could change your gears on the handlebars. We had mm. the old system where you had to change on the down lever and I said, why can't, why didn't we get the new equipment? And they said, mm. because we'd need a mechanic to be able to do it all. <laughs> so we Gosh. had old equipment. So when I was about to attack, I had to change the gear, look around, make sure nobody had realised what I'm doing mm. and then start my attack. Because mm. <laughs> it was a dead giveaway, right? That's what you were doing, yeah, 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 yeah. with the gears, clunk and then yeah. Whereas, yeah, when it's on the handlebars, you just do it and you're off. So. God, I take that for granted. Did the other girls in the comp? Did uh, were there other girls that had those new handlebar gears? Yeah, yeah. Most Feels of weird them to call them here. Most of them did. Them, yeah. But you had the old clunky. We had the old wow old ones shifters. The change on the down shifters, but the track guys who weren't even racing the road at the Olympics, Charlie's guys, all had the new equipment. Wow. You, that was a huge moment for Australia and still remains this huge moment. You crossing the line, winning Australia's, because that was the first gold medal at the Barcelona Games yeah. as well. And it was the first time that Australia had won the road race and still the only road race gold, Olympic gold, that we've got male or female. This was massive, wasn't it? Did you get a sense of how massive it was when you crossed the line? Oh, yeah, I was so excited because there's something from a young kid that I dreamed of, like I dreamed mm. of in running and, um, yeah, but it didn't really hit me till that's right. And then we went for the drug testing and they've grabbed the team doctor because she had big sunnies on and they thought she was the athlete because I looked too small and no. grabbed her and tried <laughs> to drag her into the drug testing. I said, oh, no, no, don't do that because she'd been out drinking wine and, you know, having some nice, nice dinners. I'm like, oh, no, 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 it's me. And they go, you? And I said, yep. And then um, when – but it wasn't until I got back to the village and I was walking to dinner and this Russian coach, he's clapping from the balcony and then oh. it kind of hit me, oh, yeah, I've won, and I had it in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I, That's awesome. I got to the dining hall and um, I can remember, um, yeah, all the in the lead-up, all the, the athletes had been super excited about champion cyclists, but because I came from running, I didn't even know who they half of them were. And um, mm. 
But then mm-hmm. I saw Stefan Edberg and I was like, oh, wow. So they said he's behind that pillar. So I'm looking behind this big concrete pillar and he smiles at me and laughs. I was that embarrassed I ran off. Yeah. <laughs> I love dining room stories from the Olympics. That's awesome. Um, you then pretty had to back up because you were doing the pursuit and you mentioned before that was the race that Charlie didn't want to, wouldn't let you train on the track, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't give you any help. new wheel. I had to use new equipment and my coach said wow. you've got to go and because they make noises and it could put you mm. off. Or, so he said you should need to train on it once at least and then I got banned from using the wheels and I got a bit upset <sighs> at the training and the Canadians said to me, oh, we thought you were done because you were upset and <laughs> we said, no, don't worry about not Kathy. She, she's like, no hope. She's lost yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I said, oh, that's not Was fair. It- why can't the women, why can't I use the equipment? The men have been training on them forever. Yeah. yeah. And um, Was it hard as a female voice to call out and question someone like Charlie in that position of power? Well, I did because it's wrong, and uh, but it's like my 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 four friend Anita, she was in the track team years before me, and the guys used to get driven back from the track in the bus, and she had to walk back walk. Lucky she's got long legs, mm-hmm. and she was a marathon runner. She had to walk back seven or eight k by herself. What after the race? Yeah, from training and stuff. And with just because she was female, yep. And he said, There's no place for women here. That's awful. The politics in 1996 before the Atlanta Games was quite intense as well, and a really difficult time for you. You actually took the Australian Cycling Federation to court, well, the Court of Arbitration for Sport over their controversial selectings, in that they you didn't get selected. Um, can you tell me what was happening then, and and your decision to do that? Um, I, I won the I won the first shoot at the track nationals, and Charlie Walsh was hell bent on putting Lucy Tyler Sharman in the team. I won the mm. um, the pursuit and the I think the points race, and I lapped Lucy Tyler Sharman in at ten wow. laps of the pursuit. I'd passed her, mm. so she's out. And then um, in the points race, she pulled out, and I yeah won it, and um, and yeah I got selected. And Ray Godkin, who was the president, he said he guaranteed my selection. I said, well, if that's no, I got I got told I would be the one to do the pursuit, mm-hmm. and then we we're still um, vying for the road race, um, and I said, well. I didn't trust it because of past things. So I said, Your history? Put, yeah, put that in writing. So he put it in writing that I would mm-hmm. be the one and then uh, Charlie Walsh did everything he could to put this American, Lucy Tyler Sharman, <laughs> mm. in the team, even though, um, yeah, he knew things about her history and um, things like mm. that. And then, yeah, I got selected for the road race and then he Mm -hmm. just tried to, he invited the VIS coach, Dave Sanders, and Mm -hmm. basically bought him off by um, inviting him over there, threatening his career um, if he kept supporting me. And um, 
yeah, he derailed my whole Olympic campaign and I had to go through the mm. court of arbitration for sport and, mm. yeah, it was terrible. You won. No, yeah, but I won because mm. they said I'd been treated unfairly and unjustly, mm. but it ruined my Olympics and we were at the All Rider Tour, which is the biggest tour in America before um, the Atlanta Olympics and, yeah, I was racing really well there, same as I had done in Barcelona. And mm. um, But, yeah, it just derailed my whole campaign because I had mm. to fight in the courts and then all the media mm. and everything going on. Well, what was the media like? What was the media reporting? Because the media typically of that era wasn't so supportive of any female athletes at all. But I'm interested, what was the reporting like? No, we had supportive people like um, Jim Wilson and there were some really um, great people. Yeah, was happening. Yeah. What was happening. But still it just creates all this mm. noise that really you should just be focusing on what you've got to do to to win. Yeah. You must have had such a strong conviction to fight this the way that you did and to fight everything. And I know you just laugh it off and just say, well, not laugh it off, certainly you didn't laugh it off, but you brush it off saying, well, it was wrong so I had to speak up. But I can imagine that being a female athlete in the early 90s that to be so strong and to to fight these things the way that you did and to call out this behaviour would have been difficult. Yeah, I mean, like, but I, I won the right, not... I, I no. Won, I won the yeah. pursuit. I lapped Lucy Tyler-Sharman. Yeah. I won the pursuit. I, I got selected on the road race. I was the best road rider mm. there. Um, yeah. <laughs> How did it affect your race in the end? You said it did, it derailed your campaign? Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was just crazy because all this stuff was going on in mm. the lead up to the Olympics. It happened again four years later for the 2000 Olympics. This time you fought it in the court and it was denied. Is it just disbelief? Yeah, but the thing is with the court of arbitration, the thing, it's um, the people they put on the committee mm. cycling. You can't have a lawyer and they select um, they select the people. So one of the people on the panel, there's a Cycling Australia person, a judge who they don't know cycling, and then there's um, mm. uh, Kevin Nichols, who was one of Charlie's team pursuitors mm. on the panel. Like it's like stacked. Like yeah, you really. But how did it even get to oh. that? Are you just in disbelief that it got to that stage four years later, with all the bad publicity surrounding it, and the fact that you won in Atlanta yeah. that right to to ride, and you're clearly the best rider? Are you just shocked that there was no accountability and that? you were again in this position four years later? Yes, yeah, disappointing because I dreamed of going to um, mm. the Sydney Olympics, my home Olympics, and I was never out of the top three um, road cyclists. By that stage I wasn't doing track anymore um, because after Atlanta I decided just to stop that. Um, but, yeah, mm. I was never, I was in the top three cyclists always um, within Australia. So it was very disappointing mm. not to get selected. I had to do a time of 3.38 to make the squad. So mm. we went over and spent three weeks at the, the golf course near the track training and 
training on the velodrome in Perth and there was really mm. hot weather and that's when they invented the Superman position, but I didn't use that position. I did mm. a time of 3.38 in February that year um, mm. to make the team, to make the squad. And, uh, yeah, Charlie just did everything he could um, to stop me. And mm. what I was amazed, it was, it was actually sad when I went to the Olympics and I was in the crowd and I watched Alana Burns and she didn't do mm. 3.38 and then... Mm. I read that Charlie had set her on a time of like 3.38 point something, um, mm. which is what I'd done in February. <laughs> yeah. So so you just had this sense she, of what could have been. Failed and she was crying on the bin. I'll never forget it. And Charlie Walsh is just sitting there with other people chatting like she doesn't exist. <laughs> Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's so awful. Yeah. Do you ever just think about when you reflect on your career because you've done so much and you're such a dominant figure, but do you ever think, man, imagine if I wasn't fighting all these battles all the time, what could have been if I could just focus on cycling and have that support instead of having to go through court or having these roadblocks put in my way and these kind of barriers um, that was set that I even overcame but still there were more barriers after barriers after barriers. Yeah, I mean, I was one of the pioneers for women's cycling, but what I am proud of is that nowadays women have teams like Jerry Ryan, they've got, um, you know, the mm. Oracle, like the Green Edge team and it's part, and women get supported better. Um, there's still a way to go with it all, but... Mm. Um, they can get wages or you can join professional teams. There's other opportunities. You don't um, and by but, but one of the things by winning the Olympics, um, Ros Kelly, she said we have to have women's a full time women's cycling program in the AIS. So that mm. was the first time they initiated a full time women's program that was after barcelona after, after barcelona, your win off the back of that yeah the golden Storm. yeah off the back of they, that yeah, yeah. They, um, they already had the men's program there with heiko Selswedel and andrew mm. logan became the women's coach and um that we had the first full-time mm. program for women so yeah. yeah that's something to be pretty proud of and from there you got all the institutes of sport and supporting women and Mm. Um, yeah, that was the beginning of, I guess, then going to the pro tour team scenario that we have yeah. today. Yeah, so important. Mm. Scott McGrory and Robbie McEwen, two incredible Australian cyclists, they both spoke out and have spoken out in the last few years about Charlie and the practices and what it was like being in that in that team back then. Um, they waited a long time to do that, but when you heard and read what they wrote. I think Robbie wrote it in his book and Scott wrote like an article just a few years ago after watching the AFL and and seeing that Charlie was working with one of the AFL teams and the commentators, you know, just singing his praises and Scott just sitting there watching the AFL thinking, if only you knew. Um, when you read those articles and, and Robbie's books, did you feel validated and did you feel seen by well, when, what when they... When everything happened to me in 96 with Charlie Walsh, I had that many people writing letters of support and they said, Great. 
they trained with Charlie and he just threw a bunch of eggs at the wall and if they broke, you know, he, there was, um, yeah, he ruined lots of people's careers, people, mm. uh, Baden Cool, people that went on to become great road cyclists or um, people that had, um, yeah, there's a lot of people that had, uh, yeah, they had to give their whole life to the program but there was no mm. education there was no work and when they finished mm. they just get thrown out and uh discarded mm. basically so mm. um and the way people were treated yeah <laughs> mm. but, um yeah a lot of people suffered because of it and most of them suffered quietly but you know he destroyed a lot mm. of men's careers and sometimes mm. the physiologist said to me, if you just backed off the training a bit, you could have lots more champions, but, you know, so. Mm. But, yeah, there was no place for women and, uh, yeah, not in the program. Mm. Um, you made quite a number of comebacks. <laughs> um 2003, 2006 um, were some of your comebacks, but for you, given what happened for the 2000 Olympics. In 2003, I kept training and then I narrowly missed the 2004 Olympics because we had the trial was Mm. um, in the middle of uh, a tour and I tried to do too Mm. well at the tour, but I should have just taken it easy and Focused I lost on by eight seconds to Carrigan, who then, yeah, she won the Olympics. But, um, but then I made a come. Mm. I kept training because the Commonwealth Games were in Melbourne, and then yeah. I turned around at my bike shop. So, I had <laughs> to win it was to win because of these bad selection policies. Was for me to win the national championship. So. I trained. Yeah. I, I went to Europe in 2005 and then I came home and I never stopped training. Yeah, never stopped training. Um, and, um, and yeah, trained for the day. And then I came out at the national championships at 40 years of age and beat Carrigan and Anini Ward and <laughs> um, beat everybody by over a minute and uh, mm-hmm. got made, got selected for the Com Games and then the Com Games were on a lot flatter course from St Kilda to Black Rock but that's mm-hmm. the course I'd done my whole life. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, and I beat Carrigan and Anim Woods ended up winning it. But, yeah, to get silver medal was pretty good and I got selected on the women's lotto pro tour team and went to Belgium. Oh, off the back of that. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and was it validating, you know, given what happened in Sydney, then to be able to to pick up a medal and a silver on your home track, like at the Commonwealth Games, is that, and did that drive you? Yeah, it was pretty special. Um, yeah, being able to do it in Melbourne with the home crowd and, yeah, mm. we had a lot of supporters out there. So, yeah, it was really good. At 40 years of age, I love that. I'm 40, so I especially love that. Um how difficult then was it when you finally called time on your career? How and did you struggle with a non-cycling Kathy after that? Um, well, I decided I was going to do 
uh, photography. So what I did was mm-hmm. um, I tried to get a team and I didn't think a team was going to come that I wanted. So I decided I rang the um, boss at Inside Sport and I said I'd love to do an inside story of the men's Tour de France and go and photograph mm-hmm. it. And great. he said, great, if the other photographers go left, you go right and get mm. this great photos and I knew had a lot of contacts so guys like Mick Rogers four times three times world champion Mm -hmm. he he got me into where they're all having ice baths so on some of my photos guys with no nicks on so I had to be careful which ones I put in but I had had to put in some more white on the nicks for the photo exhibition Mm. and uh I got in, had um, Tor Hushoft, who was in the green jersey, reading the race map, sitting around. Um, I got into massage rooms, team buses, all sorts of things. And I knew some of the mechanics. And so I had this great, great story of what was happening and then funny pictures as well, like a guy pulls up mm. his top at the top of the mountain. It's got a tattoo, I believe I can fly. It's really funny. It's really cool. Mm. What do you love about photography and this profession? Um, yeah, I love looking at different sports and uh, yeah, what makes people tick. And I guess I see sports through a different lens from a lot of other photographers. I like the energy. Mm. Like I went to the World Championships in Wollongong and, yeah, um, yeah there were great crowds on the hill and, all the mm. families are going, Kathy, and they're inviting me to the barbecue. <laughs> and I was getting yes. pictures of them. And because you interact, then you can get the enthusiasm and the excitement. Yeah, yeah. Another lovely family on the hill, they were dressed as dinosaurs. Oh, you know, they were yes. on these dinosaur suits. <laughs> and the, William, the guy, he had a, a top hat and a, and a suit on and they were serving Every time they gave me gin and tonics, oh, you know, lemon, lime and bitters every time I went up the hill and yes. they had all this food and they're just amazing. Um, is the cycling landscape, it, it's so much better than what it is when you were there and we have, you know, you to thank for that and your fight and your resilience and your determination and your conviction that, no, this is wrong just because I'm female doesn't mean I can't do this and and should be denied this. So, you know, I think Australian cycling for women have a lot. You to thank for that. So thank you for that. Um, but is the cycling landscape where it should be for for women at the moment, do you think? Oh, I think it's still developing. Um, but, like, because when they get more coverage, then you can have more sponsors and it all works in a circle, you know. So mm. Mm. I guess... When I won, I got recognition as Olympic gold medalist, not necessarily, I mean, I was in cycling, but it wasn't as a woman cyclist, whereas now because the women are part of becoming, there's a women's um, section of the men's team and, Mm. you know, they're campaigning for better wages and different things, Mm. a lot better conditions and um they don't have to buy all their own um, equipment mm. or even at state mm. level they have it all supplied. So it's really mm. come a long way and there's more um, opportunities to study and do other things. So, yeah. 
If you could go back and see a little 10-year-old Kathy, what? And you could tell her anything. What would you go back? What advice would you give her? Um, yeah, just be open to different opportunities and sports and, yeah, you never know what what might happen. <laughs> and keep fighting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're a fighter, Kathy. Um, as I mentioned, like you've left the sport and the sporting landscape in a better position than, than you found it because of who you are and and your strong sense of conviction and resilience. So, um, so yeah, thank you so much for everything you've done for women's sport and, and sport in Australia. And thank you so much for sharing your story with On Her Game. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. 